This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Scott Radley in for Rick Zamper today. Here is what is coming up. We're going to be talking about the local Jewish community and some of the challenges, which is probably too soft a word, but the challenges that it's been facing since the terror attacks by Hamas. We'll also be talking about what is happening over in the Middle East about getting people out of there. I'll be talking with the uh, head of the Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. If you have ever wanted to have a cottage, now might be the time to buy one. We'll tell you why. The Online News Act, there are concerns even among those in the news area, the news market, about how much money may or may not be brought in as a result of this and what this is going to mean. We'll talk about that one. Ultra-processed foods, as addictive as heroin? A new study seems to suggest that may be true. Really? Uh, We'll talk about the NDP convention that wrapped up in the city of Hamilton on the weekend and more. Stick around right here on the podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The last week and a half or thereabouts has been particularly difficult for Jewish people around the world and here in Hamilton with what has happened in Israel with the terror attack and whatever has happened subsequently. And there's been a bunch of things up to last weekend that uh, the leader of Hamas was calling for a day of rage, which led to protection at various synagogues and other places around the world. It's uh, This has not been an easy time, and that is almost a... Um, embarrassing understatement, but we go with the words we have. Gustavo Rimberg is the Chief Executive Officer of the Hamilton Jewish Federation. Joins me now. Gustavo, how are you today? Hard to say, honestly, but I'm, I really appreciate your time and, and contacting us to to express our, our thoughts. It's very important for us. What, very difficult what, times. What has the... Um, now, I mean, I, I know, uh, well, I shouldn't say I know. I suspect, I think I understand what, this, what the feeling and the sentiment was a week or so ago when uh, those in Israel were attacked. But since then, what has the sentiment been among the Jewish community? Has there been a sense of feeling like people are caring for them and being concerned for them? Or has there been more fear? Or what's it been? I think that it's a combination of both, and it depends which day of the week. You know, the beginning, you know, I would receive at the office in Jewish organizations a lot of support from allies, friends in the community. At, at the same time, the opposite, you know. So I, um, the, the Jewish community right now, we feel, you know, unsafe sometimes. We have to take care of extra security that we never had before, especially in Hamilton. Uh, we have to face families that they are afraid to send the kids to Jewish schools. There are people that they are afraid to go to synagogues, people that they are afraid to do the normal Jewish life. So it's very complicated. And for sure, you know, the, the situation between the the Hamilton MPP who promote this kind of uh, uh, actions of Hamas and these terror attacks, you know, it's very, it's very uncomfortable, very uncertain for the Jewish community to be dealing with this, you know. But at the same time, we have to keep uh, strong, united. We, we, we are we're an amazing Jewish community in Hamilton. We have support of many, many people. But you have to be extra uh, careful about the ones that they are not supporting us and they're supporting terrorist attacks. 
there have been uh, all over the world, and even this weekend in Hamilton, there have been um, demonstrations for Palestinian liberation. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I, it's a, it's an interesting situation because I, I think there is a legitimate. Uh, people can make a legitimate case or can legitimately believe in the idea that they would like Palestine and Palestinians to be free. But how do you untangle that or can you untangle that right now from what has happened with Hamas? Is it possible? Can you, can you look at those demonstrations as a Jewish person and say, okay, I get where they're coming from, or do you look at that and see something else? I, I would say something else. I would say that Everyone has a right to protest, but there's a thin line, especially in these kind of situations. You know, like two months ago, three months ago, a demonstration to support the the Palestinian case means one thing. After this terror attack means something different. And I think that they are choosing the wrong time to express that because you know, I think that the manifestations and the rallies that we should be seeing, not only in Hamilton, but everywhere, there are manifestations for peace and on them a terrorist attack altogether, because this is not against the Palestinian people. This is against a terrorist group, the same terrorist group that commit many, many attacks all over the world. So it's not the moment to do it. I think this is a moment to to criticize, to, to be against terror. And especially, it's not the right moment because the terror attack was targeted to kill Jewish people. So for me, and for a lot of members of my community, and I'm sure for everyone in my community, it's an anti-Semitic attack. So we have to condemn that together. This is not about a war against the Palestinian people. This is combating terror and anti-Semitism. That's what it is. It is, Gustavo, it's inevitable that in a war, innocent people die. There's never been a war where innocent people have not died, where they have Mm -hmm. been, you know, collateral damage, if you want to use a cliche, Mm -hmm. which which reduces Mm -hmm. it to something ridiculously Mm -hmm. small. But... We we believe that there is going to be an Israeli ground attack. Israel certainly has been going after Hamas. Do you worry that when we start to hear about some innocent people dying on both sides, but especially within Gaza, that sentiment is going to turn against Israel and things become more difficult for you? It's going to be more difficult, but I will I will call everyone to think about, first of all, how many innocent people were killed last Saturday. And we were not in a war last Saturday. And there are like 1,500 Israelis, also innocent and civilians, that they were killed. So where are we? Where are we? I, you know? So, yeah, there's, uh, there's going to be many casualties in both sides, in both sides. But Hamas started by killing 1,500 or more, we don't know yet, innocent people. So... Where are the standards? I mean, who, you know, why, why the, the, the people that will die in a war, you know, are different from the ones that were killed a week ago? 
It is, uh, it is, the whole thing is so sad and, uh, so complicated. And as I understand, as you explain, um, so difficult right now, uh, Gustavo really appreciate taking a few minutes to talk about it today. Gustavo Rimberg, chief executive okay. officer of the Hamilton Jewish Federation. Thank you for your time. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We are keeping our eye, everyone is not just us. I mean, we, we being the general, we are keeping our eye on what is going on in Israel and Gaza and that whole area of the world. It is, uh, it is an accelerating situation and that is not good. And there is, um, an expectation that there will be, in all likelihood, it seems anyway, a ground war soon, and it's just a it's just a horrendous situation. It's just a horrendous situation. Uh, but there is concern for people over there, all kinds of people over there in all kinds of places. Thomas Woodley is the president of the Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, who joins us now. Thomas, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. So you, uh, you, your group has put out a statement expressing its concern about, uh, about what is going on and about getting Canadians out of there. Explain, please. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we're concerned, uh, we're concerned for, for everyone, uh, every civilian on both sides. But uh, right now it's the civilians in, in, in Gaza who are under assault uh, for a week now and uh, sort of seems like an indiscriminate assault, which is course against international law but of course the canadian government one of its first concerns is to uh, evacuate its own citizens and uh, you know when when you have a territory that's uh, uh, under what israel calls complete siege um uh it's a it's a tricky thing for canada to to get its civilians out uh friday there was talk of uh there being a way to get civilians out canada isn't the only country that has foreign nationals in gaza and there was talk on Friday that maybe for a few hours on Saturday afternoon, uh, there'd be a way to get foreign nationals out. Um, unfortunately, on Saturday, uh, it seems Israel said, nope, it's not going to happen. And that was that. So if you're a Canadian in, in, in Gaza right now, um, you're, you're trapped. Uh, on the contrary... If you're a Canadian in Israel who wants to get out, uh, as of Saturday, there had already been four flights uh, to get you out of uh, out of Israel. Uh, for for Canadians uh, stuck in the West Bank, they have to. They're not allowed to go through the Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. They're forced to go out through Jordan, so they have to cross the cross uh, on the east and get out through Jordan. And uh, there have been no flights for Canadians out out of Jordan. So the the uh, I, I don't know if you know last year uh, Amnesty International uh, published a report saying that Israel had been practicing apartheid against uh, Palestinians or you know had, had in, installed a regime of apartheid and that apartheid plays out in this sort of thing whereas Israelis are able to get out very easily and Palestinians are stuck and and prevented and because of a two-tier system because of their nationality they can't get out of the the one airport right now where Canada's flying flights. And that's just, that's really an unfortunate uh, reflection of reality and the reality that Palestinians live on a day-to-day basis. Is, uh, and you, you've uh, clearly said that this is uh, the result of Israel, that Israel's policy doesn't allow this. Uh, can, could they get out? Would, would Hamas allow them to get out even if they wanted to get out though? Is this entirely falling on Israel or is the reality that Hamas does not want its people to get out? Uh, there's been no statement from uh, Hamas saying people people can't get out. Absolutely not. 
uh, the the one it was the the actual plan that is that uh, Canada had was to get uh, get Canadian civilians out of Gaza through Egypt. Uh, and they were trying to negotiate with Israel if Israel would allow the safe passage of Canadians out in through the Rafah clo- closing in, in southern Gaza into Egypt. And Israel actually said, well, uh, if you um, w- we won't permit that and uh, uh, we may even b- bombard people trying to get out through the Gaza through the Rafah close uh, crossing into Egypt. So so it had nothing to do with Hamas. I, I will since you mentioned Hamas, I, I will bring up something on that. Uh, you know, I, I was listening to some Israeli media last night, and uh, uh, quite often Israelis say, you know, Hamas is using human shields. And you, I, a few months ago, I actually looked back into, uh, you know, past. This isn't, of course, the first time uh, Israel has 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 bombarded Gaza. It's not the first time they've accused Hamas of using human shields. And I looked in past conflicts, 2014, 2008, 2009, 2011. And the human rights organizations did not find explicit examples of where Hamas had sort of placed their fighters right next to something or placed civilians in front of their things. I mean, it, it is a highly urban environment, and you can't necessarily expect you know Hamas fighters to stand out in the middle of an open field with a with a rifle and face off with a helicopter. On the other hand, they're not. Uh, the, the human rights organizations like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch had not found instances where where Hamas had explicitly placed, uh, you know, their their military operations in a way such that you know civilians were in, intentionally put in harm's way. Uh, so this is something that's often repeated, but has not actually been 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 demonstrated in past conflicts. I, I, as I say, I just I I'm reading the the statement that uh, that uh, Canada must demand e- Israel lift the siege of Gaza. Canada must use political ties with Israel to guarantee the safe evacuation of Canadians. Yeah. Uh, push Israel to waive its racially discriminating policies. Uh, push Israel to respect international law and cease all military actions which endangers uh, Ga- Gaza civilians. There's lots of demands on Israel. I see not one demand that your group has made though towards Hamas. This is a th- Hamas staged a terror attack and I, I don't see any demand that they participate in getting Canadians out of there. This seems very one-sided from where you're coming from. Uh, well, I, 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 it's because Hamas hasn't made any step to prevent civilians from leaving. I mean, we, we, we have made statements where we have said that uh, Hamas's attack on uh, uh, Israeli civilians is uh, obviously in violation of international law. Uh, but Hamas currently isn't preventing anyone from leaving. Do you see? You know, Israel Israel called on people over the weekend to to 1.1 million people to entirely vacate the north of Ga- of the Gaza Strip. Was was, was there any opposition from Hamas? No. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not here to be an apologist for Hamas. Uh, nobody needs to d- defend them. But uh, right now, Israel is the one doing the mob. If you were asking, if you'd ask me uh, on October 7th at, or early in the morning and you said, Tom, what do you think about the violence? I'd say Hamas should stop it immediately uh, in the middle of that. But but Hamas isn't the one right now who's who's dropping bombs. And right now, the, the casualty, the casualty report is, is about twice uh uh, going going beyond twice the number of Palestinians killed and injured as as Israelis. So at what point? At what point hey, do we say? Tom, well, first of all, Tom, 
it's all I got. What is the value? What is the value of life between the two sides? Is are is, is one Israeli worth two Palestinians or ten Palestinians or a hundred Palestinians? And that's what we've seen in the past. Oh, I got to jump uh, in. So, I, I got to yeah, run. Go Sorry, uh, Tom Woodley, President of the Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. Thanks for taking the time today. I really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Have you wanted to own a cottage? Now, for some of you, that may be a complete pipe dream, and I get that. I understand housing prices are crazy, and just even affording living around here is enough. But, you know, if you happen to be somebody who's in the market, maybe that you wanted to own a cottage, it sounds like this may be your time. And here's why. Cottage sales went berserk during COVID because people couldn't be getting away. So they bought a cottage. Hey, I got Wi-Fi. I've got internet. I can work from the cottage. I can be not in the city. I can be away from everything. We heard of cottage prices going up by, in some cases, double almost or more. Cottage country prices went through the roof. Well, turns out now, here's the thing. When you buy a cottage, you have to pay for a cottage and mortgage rates are coming are up and people's renewals are coming up. And it seems as though... There's an awful lot of people now saying, "Uh, I got a cottage I got to unload, which is bringing prices down. Conrad Zarini is a broker of record with Remax Escarpment, joins us now. Conrad, how are you this morning? I am fantastic. Can't be better. (laughs) I wish it was brighter outside. Well, (laughs) yeah, give it time. We we appreciate you coming on so early in the morning. But this, okay, so let me just say, and and I I do like to preface this because I know some people, whenever we talk about things like luxury items like cottages, people go, come on, I can't even afford to live here. We get that there, but there are people also who really do want to buy a cottage and that's in their bucket list or their dream world. And this Conrad does seem like one of those times that if you are able, this may be the time to jump. Your introduction was fantastic and and definitely COVID changed everything. The family cottage was just that family cottage that you held generationally. It was very difficult to get into the market. Uh, But then, uh, you know, COVID, uh, everybody saw the investment side of things with Airbnbs and short-term rentals, and it started to make a lot of sense. So unfortunately, they used their either line of credit for their home, a HELOC, and in a lot of cases, it was variable, or they, if they did do a, a closed mortgage, those mortgages are coming due, and uh, there's huge opportunity. So if you think in May 2021, it was probably about uh, 1,200 sales, uh, cottage sales in the month. Uh, we just saw in August around 452. And we saw an influx of listings, probably about 30% more than we've ever seen before. So a huge opportunity for people that want to enter that market, especially now, because not many people are looking for a cottage in the fall. Uh, anybody that's putting out their cottage now really needs to sell. So you can probably negotiate a very, very good deal. There are, uh, back when COVID hit, uh, clearly there were a large number of people who made the complete move. They said, forget it, I'm moving out of town and I'm going to live at my cottage. I don't know how many of those people now, see, there's two things here. There's the one, which is the second home, which I can't afford because I can't afford the mortgage payment. The second, I've often wondered about this is, well, now that life is back to normal and we don't have to be living in isolation, have people discovered, you know, it is really isolating, especially in the winter, to be up in some of these places, and I need to be around people. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, businesses are calling people back. Like RBC that too. said it again. 
uh, Dave McKay is saying it again, we want you back in the office. So we're seeing that three week, three day a week in the office and people think the commute is something more difficult. Now they, you know, you might see a four day and then eventually a five day that that trend is coming back because all these banks, they finance offices. So that trend of being able to, to relocate and, and operate uh, remotely or, or is, is dwindling. And, and you're absolutely right. There's, this is a two, you know, it's, you know, you say you wait for the shoe to drop. The investor shoe is dropping because Airbnb is stricter rules. And now you've got this happening. The other shoe is dropping, which is people, the, you know, dealing with remote work, having to come back to, to urban centers, uh, because that commute is just too, too crazy. And they, you know, they're really seeing it and feeling it and feeling the fact that, you know, they must come back to, to, to closer to town. We're seeing it all over. We've, We've seen it in our markets too, like areas, uh, remote areas are not doing as well. Uh, inventories are high. Uh, not that, you know, like back during COVID, that type of product sold very quickly, it was listed and put, put on the market and sold. Now there are people going back that hold the big, the great return, so to speak. And uh, they're hugging um, areas where they can afford that are close to transportation. So that's why mm. the cottage, the other piece of the puzzle. Conrad, are when you have more and more cottages that are going on the uh, for sale, there, there's two things. Again, we keep coming back to the two things here, but one of them is there is availability. There wasn't even a really availability for a while, no. but is this also driving down the prices? I, I said off the top that you could get a deal, but am I right? Or is it just that there's availability? Have prices also dropped? Oh yeah, prices are dropping, and and they're and it's noticeable. Cottage has always been a volatile uh, market uh, to begin with, it, especially you know if let's say you did have that family cottage, and you know I remember back in the '90s and people saying you know what I think we have to sell the family cottage, uh, you know the economy is is uh, really stretching our our dollar, so it's let, let's let's regroup and and that type of thing. So yes, the other thing is maintaining a cottage and keeping a cottage. Is, is much, much more expensive than it was, you know, even 10 years ago. So the cost of renovations, uh, your, your break walls, all that kind of thing is just uh, is adding to it. It's gas prices. You know, there were people, I, I have friends of mine, the upper end friends of mine that were flying uh, up, up to their cottages. Like, you know, like it was, uh, you know, they were real uh, rock stars, right? But that's even changed because that's more expensive. So yeah, it's 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 really um, at that at that price point. I would say that I know this is a big price point, but that million to million five price point, there's a huge advantage. Prices have been dropping uh, in double digits. Where it's kind of stable is that five million plus. You know, when you're on the big three and you're five million plus, those people are really not uh, affected by all this. No, and they always had that cottage, so that and they're always they're 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 prepared for what the cost of a cottage is. But people that just entered the market in 2021, a third of the cottages for sale today are people that entered the market wow. in 2021. I so, mean, yeah. we, we got to run. The, the money is clearly a big factor here in mortgage rates having to be renewed. I, I will guess, though, and as I say, I wish we had more time to talk about this. I will guess that there are also people like myself who, you know, we rent a cottage most summers. And every single year I go up to the cottage and go, we should buy a cottage. I mean, not that we're in the market for it, but we should buy a cottage. And then I get to this time of year and I think, I am so glad we didn't buy a cottage. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder, again, how many people, when the reality hits of fall and winter and repairs and all that stuff if they then say, oh, should have maybe thought about this a little more. Uh, Conrad Zarini, uh, broker of record with Remax Escarpment. Thanks so much for doing this, Conrad. Thank really appreciate much. it. Thanks for having me. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We are talking food. Uh, your Twitter poll today 
New research says highly processed food like chips and ice cream are highly addictive. Are you an addict? But that brings us back to the question. So go to Twitter or X and look for 900CHML and cast your vote. But boy, when I heard that and read this study that says that ultra-processed foods, according to this research, are just as addictive, just as addictive as nicotine, cocaine, or heroin... I was not really sure I was going that far. However, maybe my next guest will. Her name is Shannon Crocker. She's a registered dietitian and nutritionist. Joins us now. Shannon, how are you today? Hi, Scott. I'm great. Thanks. How are you doing? I am great. I I have no dispute with the idea that uh, fast foods and ultra-processed foods taste delicious and they're not good for us and we want to eat them and we desire them, but heroin and cocaine? Really? Uh, yeah, you know what? That's actually a, a bit of a stretch. I think that what the um, authors of the paper that was released in the British Medical Journal were trying to do when they did the analysis of of the recent research looking into ultra processed foods and potential addiction was they're trying to look for and and to create um, some mounting evidence to show that certain foods could be addictive. And um, similarly to to other drugs. Now, you know, it should be noted that it's actually like food addiction, ultra processed food addiction is not an official diagnosis. And it's an area with lots of uncertainties. Um, We throw around the word addicted, I think, pretty casually. And it's really not fair to the people with true substance addictions. But there is some evidence mounting that that certain foods may have addictive properties for uh, some people. I, look, I don't dispute for a second, and I, I think the, the the underlying part of this, whether we take it to the extreme or not, uh, I, and I'm sure many people listening, have had more than a few occasions where there has been an absolute burning desire for something that was really not good for me that we went and found and ate and momentarily felt better, but probably did not help ourselves at all. Right. Well, what we want to know, what we know for sure about these foods is that evidence, again, is mounting that... A overall dietary pattern rich or high in ultra processed foods is not good for your health, could be harmful to your health, both physical and mental health. And um, so, yeah, sure, everybody knows the sorts of foods that we're talking about here. So we're talking about sweet snacks and salty snacks, and definitely they have an increased desirability. They've got an increased palatability, and it could be that the carbohydrate and fat combo um, gives you a boost of dopamine, helps you to feel good. And, and you overeat those because you're, uh-huh. you're craving that sort of, you know, good feeling. Uh, uh, look, um, there have been some days when more than one or two Krispy Kreme donuts have disappeared in one <laughs> sitting. Uh, yes, absolutely. It gives you that good feeling until it doesn't. Right. Absolutely. And, and oftentimes that's the thing with an addiction is potentially that comes with, um, you know, loss of control of consumption, excessive intake could um, and then you don't feel great afterwards it comes with you know negative consequences too so what what the researchers um, have found or what they're trying to figure out rather is you know what is it potentially about certain foods that may be addictive and and there's no consensus on what that might be and that's why you know there's some um, critics of the ultra processed food addiction theory that it's actually not an addiction because they can't really figure out they haven't pinpointed yet 
what it is about those foods that may make them um, have addictive properties. All right. I, I don't know if this is a question for you. I don't know if this is a fair question because this goes beyond food, but we just talked about, you know, and we've all done it, where you've eaten a bunch of something that was not ideal for you and it feels great for five minutes and then a few minutes later, you're like, oh, why did I do that? I feel gross. And yet we don't learn from that. We go back and do the same thing again. Now, I know you can apply that to a lot of different things that are addictive, but why do we do that? Yeah, that's a great question, Scott. I think there's lots of reasons why we do it, you know, because we do like that good feeling at that time, you know, for one thing. But also these foods, you know, they're highly accessible. Um, they're highly affordable, typically. And so they're available everywhere in our environment. And they're a part of so many things that we do. You know, you have a big football game. And what are the foods that you've got there? You know, it's not broccoli and cauliflower and salad, <laughs> generally, right? Like, it's everywhere. These foods are everywhere. And so, you know, it's really hard for people to, um, you know, not have those foods or to avoid those foods in life. And we don't necessarily want people to avoid those foods all the time, right? Like food also does bring pleasure. And really what I would say to people is it's the overall eating pattern that we want to look at. So, you know, what are you eating week to week, month to month, year to year? That's what really, truly indicates um, the impact on your health. We know that the quality of your overall eating pattern is linked with your health, whether that's good or bad, depending on the foods overall that you're eating. Are you suggesting that when you have a Super Bowl party, it's not just a tofu buffet? <laughs> I have not seen that as yet, Scott, <laughs> I have to tell you. <laughs> um, one, one of the, we only have a second left here, but one of the things that I, I wonder about this is we have in our society, for better or for worse, decided that we are going to, um, uh, what used to be a healthy body, we now have broadened our definition of that, that you can look different than you might have once upon a time for people to say you are healthy. I wonder if when that's the case, does the food that can sometime lead to that different shape body, if we're saying that body is now healthy, that we would have once upon a time said, no, it's not. Does the food that gets us there, is it difficult to say, well, then no, that's no longer healthy either? Um, well, you know, first of all, I think that there are a broad range of bodies that are healthy and weight doesn't necessarily define what your health is. So I think that's important to say right off the bat, body size doesn't indicate your health status. And particular foods don't necessarily cause you to weight gain, uh, gain weight. I've, again, it's your overall um, dietary pattern that's important. And it's, it's really, truly like, you know, your health indications versus your body weight that we need to look at when we take a look at, you know, like, are you actually healthy? That is Shannon Crocker. She is a registered dietitian and nutritionist. And I'm just terrified to think that how much talking about this has made me want a donut, but I'm not going to do it. I am not going to do it, but I'm going to take Shannon's uh, lessons and not going to do it this morning. I uh, really appreciate you jumping on board though, Shannon. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The NDP was in town on the weekend holding their convention. A uh, lot of things on the table, a lot of issues. This is what happens at these uh, party gatherings. You go over a bunch of stuff and do a lot of things. Well, one of the things that was on the agenda was a review of Jugmeet Singh's leadership. I want to bring in Kim Wright. She is the founder and principal of Wright Strategies. Kim, how are you this morning? 
I'm fantastic. How are you? I hey, could not. I, I don't know if I can rise to the level of fantastic, but I'll be really good. I'll, we'll go with that. You know what? It's always good to start with goals on a Monday. That's right. Asper- being fantastic. Kim is aspirational on a Monday morning. That is good. <laughs> uh, maybe Jugmeet Singh needs to be aspirational. And the reason I say that, he got an 81% approval rating among his party members for his leadership. However, that is down now in each of the last two times that he has had a leadership review. And you start to wonder, some of the, there, there seems to be the hints of at least a few people in the party grumbling of some of the things he's doing. Should he be concerned? No, look, he got an A. And, you know, I, I know I get that the parents out there will say they don't do A's in school anymore. When I was in school, getting into the 80s, that's an A. And um, I, I think when you look at a leader who has been there for a few years now in a couple of election cycles, going into doing some very hard things, including the compl- uh, confidence and supply agreement, and some of the uh, some of the controversial conversations we were having, hard conversations we're having as a party, to come out of that with an A, I think that's a strong mandate to continue on. Uh, there will always be an element in every party that just is saying no, just for the you know sake of saying no to you know make them be better. Uh, I don't know if you watched any of the coverage of the convention, but New Democrats are very good at saying. You're doing great, but just not enough. And could you do just this little bit more? So I think there was a lot of that. But I, you know, I saw Jugmeet a lot over the course of the weekend. Him uh, interacting with delegates, interacting with caucus members. There was a lot of swagger. There was a lot of goodwill, uh, and and there's a lot uh, that he has from a momentum standpoint going forward. The the you mentioned the supply and confidence agreement. Boy, th- this seems to be uh, something that you either love or you despise. And one of the criticisms, and and you've heard this, I'm sure, many times from people, maybe inside or maybe outside the party, is Jugmeet Singh has done a lot of criticism of Justin Trudeau over the last while on social media and elsewhere for things. And yet, very often, people say, "But you are the one." You are the sole person in Canadian politics who could actually do something about this by ending your supply and confidence agreement and voting down this government. You have the unique power to do something about the criticisms you are leveling, but you're not doing it. What do they say to that? So one of the things that's important to remember is we're actually in a minority government and in a second minority government. Canadians sent parliamentarians back with back-to-back minority government saying, all right, you knuckleheads, could you all figure out how to make life a little bit better, a little bit easier, uh, stop the bickering and figure out how to make significant movements on the things that matter? That's the mandate from Canadians for all parliamentarians. What this confidence and supply agreement says is we can still criticize the government and boy, do we. Um, but on 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 finance bills, on confidence motions, and those really are government uh, budget bills, we're not going to take down the government if and only if the Liberal Party uh, and the government agrees to move on. There are some key items within that. Uh, the dental care program that has been party policy, party doctrine forever uh, and and has periodically gone into liberal platforms, but uh, but often they shy away from it. So we've pushed them on making sure that that's there and that's countable. And the other component of, of that is the pharmacare bill. That that needs to be done by the by the end of this year, 
or we will no longer support the government on a confidence and supply basis. I think those things are exactly what you would expect. And I know Hamiltonians are very good negotiators. Those are our negotiating uh, stands. Those are our lines in the sand. And if we don't get those, then the confidence supply agreement is off. And then, you know, then the liberals will have to do what they often do, which is go play nice with the conservatives. Uh, but we think that it's more important to get dental care and pharmacare uh, for Canadians, and and that's what we've staked our that's what we've staked our negotiations on. Do you think that people? I mean, I know where you, are you uh, it's probably an unfair question to ask you, but do you think people are going to believe that though, that if pharmacare does not happen to the NDP's liking, that it really will pull out of this by the end of the year? Or do you think people are skeptical because, as I say, so far there's been a lot of bluster against the Liberals, but nothing that is done on that. Do you think it's a plausible thing, not within the party, not within the rank and file who were in Hamilton on the weekend, in the broader Canadian public? So a couple of things. One, we've actually gotten the government to move on the dental care file, meaningful movement for for children, for seniors. So yes, in fact, there are tangible results of that. And Jagmeet Singh, the New Democrat Caucus, and this weekend, there was a motion coming from the, the party convention being very explicit about if we do not have the uh, pharmacare move forward by legislation passed by the end of this year, we will no longer support the government on a confidence and supply basis. So that 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 agreement is done if we do not have that. And I think that that's very strong and it's and it matters to Canadians. It matters to new Democrats. And I'll say, you know, a bit of I'm a bit of a history buff, bit of a history nerd. And Tommy Douglas, father of, you know, Canadian Medicare, said if I had to do it all over again on universal uh, doctor care, universal uh, Medicare, I would have made sure that PharmaCare was part of that because it's great to go to your doctor where you can find them. It's great to go to your doctor, but if you can't take the medicines, if you can't afford the medicines, if you can't front load pay, as many of us do, the medicines, then you've got a diagnosis without a cure. And so this is why this is so vitally important. There were um, some protesters, not not a ton. There were some protesters and a, a bit of a skirmish. Not, uh, I don't believe they were members of the NDP, but I don't know. But nonetheless, there was about the Palestinian situation there. Is this a complicating situation? I mean, you've had a, a, an MPP who has clearly complicated things a little bit. Is this something that the party had to be abundantly clear about on the weekend, about where it stood for clarity among the Canadian public? More than the party was clear about it, our membership was. And yes, there were people who were not delegates to this convention who tried to crash the convention and disrupt the dialogue and create a very unsafe space. And I was in the middle of that, uh, watching it unfold. Um, but they didn't disrupt the convention. They they were blocked by security, as you could imagine, people who aren't convention delegates not being allowed in. Um, but delegates really did have a chance to have conversations with each other, have conversations, understanding people's different points of view, taking a breath and remembering our humanity, starting from the premise that what Hamas has done uh, is terrorism and start with that premise and go from that to a really thoughtful resolution that was passed by the delegates that was recognizing the terrorist acts of Hamas, recognizing the rise of anti-Semitism and anti-Palestinian uh, sentiment that we're seeing across Canada, move towards 
uh, a solution, a ceasefire. And this all has been well complicated and hard. This is actually the dialogue, not the rallying cries. And I'll say to listeners who are seeing uh, things like from the river to the sea, you need to look at what the history of that phrase actually means. It actually talks about the elimination of Jew, the Jewish people, uh, not just you know move them away from Israel, but a, you know the elimination of. And I think that's important to remember when you get caught up in the rallies and the activism. Understand one: there are real people here. There are real, uh, real hate speech that is being uh, framed within this. And there is a way forward where we can remember our humanity. And that's what delegates at this convention, new Democrats have have taken that breath, taken that pause and said, let's remember our humanity and why we're new Democrats. Well said, Kim. Uh, Kim Wright, founder and principal of Wright Strategies. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Here's something you may not have been expecting to hear. You know about the Online News Act. I'm sure you've heard about the Online News Act. This is the Canadian government's move to get things like Google to pay for news. And you would think that someplace like News Media Canada, which represents hundreds of publications, would be fully on board with this idea. However, while it may be, the News Media Canada says the amount that the government is saying Google, for example, is going to have to pay per year for news that it uses is way too high. Google has said this, and now the people who represent the media outlets are also saying, yeah, the government is just, this is not right. The government says $172 million per year is what they estimated last month. Google had said we had sort of estimated based on past performance around $100 million. And so Google has said, yeah, no, nah, we're not doing that. Let me bring in Carmi Levy. He is a technology analyst and he's a journalist. We love having him on the show here. Carmi, how are you today? I am great, Rick. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Any surprise that a group like News Media Canada, which you would think would be fully on board with this concept of getting the big places, big companies like Google to pay, that they would be throwing up caution flags? Yeah, it definitely raised my eyebrows because uh, earlier this year in February, this same group uh, accused Google of being a bully when it conducted a test uh, to show what would happen if they went dark. So they've been on one side of the issue, essentially saying, you know, big tech pay up. And now they're saying, well, maybe big tech has uh, has a point to make and maybe we should be a little more conciliatory. So there's a bit of a flip flop there. It's kind of surprising. But I think what's happening here, Rick, is that we are two months away from this law, which we've been talking about for months and months, it's going to be enacted December 19th, put it on your calendar. And so we're getting down to those last moments. Meta has already gone dark. Google threatened again last week saying, basically, we are going to go dark unless anything significantly changes. So I think the clock is ticking and it's getting louder and louder. And I think everyone's kind of afraid of what happens uh, if Google goes dark. It's one thing for Meta, uh, but I think it'd be far worse if Google does. And I think basically this organization is scared. They're afraid of the unknown. They're afraid of what happens if the big tech platforms fold up their tents and go home. Uh, They're afraid that we're going to lose an opportunity to find resolve a problem that's been dogging the media industry for decades. And 
I don't suggest that they shouldn't be afraid. The, the, the challenge, I guess, is the one group that doesn't seem to be afraid here is the government. The government seems, at least to this point, willing to play poker and trust that it's going to win this one. The problem is the stakes are pretty darn high if they're wrong. They absolutely are. I mean, imagine, think of how we use Google today. Think of how it kind of works its way into our daily routine. You don't have to open up google.com in order to do a search. It's part of everything that you do. Now imagine that news content can't be searchable through the tools that we're all using. Uh, It would necessitate a very significant change in habits among Canadians. We'd have to move to alternate tools like, for example, Bing from Microsoft, which is possible, but a lot of Canadians aren't going to be happy about it. So major change. And we've already seen the grumbling with Meta going dark across Facebook and Instagram. That hasn't been as intrusive to Canadians' habits because, let's face it, we don't really use social media in the same way that we use search. But still... It's a major shift, uh, and this will be seismic if it happens, and no one really wants to see that happen. But for whatever reason, the federal government is playing hardball, first time in a long time, and they seem to think that big tech is going to blink, which may yet happen. But if they don't and they're signaling they won't, Canadians are going to be in a world of hurt in a couple of months. Well, and you said that you know Canadians may not want to go to Bing or some other thing. Uh, I would suggest they're not going to. Google has become the Kleenex brand or the Zamboni brand, where it just it is the the brand. I don't think people are going to leave. And then what you end up with is this vacuum where the only thing people are going to be exposed to are the blogs and the rumors and the ridiculous stuff without anything to balance that off. That's a problem. It's a huge problem because in the absence of vetted, legitimate, actual journalism, uh, misinformation rushes in. And we've seen that across social platforms. We've certainly seen it since uh, Facebook went dark. Instagram, not so much because we really didn't use Instagram in that way. But certainly on Facebook, if you look at the quality of an individual's feed, the average person's feed over the last few months since they went dark, um, it is basically chaos now. And so it's, it's, it's a ripe landscape for the spread of misinformation. Uh, And as we've seen time and again, we as Canadians, consumers, social media users don't seem to be willing to step up to make the efforts to be better consumers of content, uh, to look for it, to actively curate it, uh, and make sure that what we're seeing in our feeds is legit. So it's a combination of factors, but you know, ultimately it means that Canadians will be less well-informed, uh, and it'll ultimately mean that we are more susceptible to being swayed by things that aren't uh, legitimately created, but that they are uh, shared with us by bad actors, malevolent actors, to move our opinions in a direction they probably shouldn't go. Why would he, why would the government not be listening to publishers and groups representing publishers when the theory is that the government is saying we're doing this to help publishers? If they're saying we want to help you, but then they won't listen to the group that says we represent you and you're not actually going to help us, that, that seems like it's working at cross purposes. It's an amazing question, and I really do hope the government has an answer for that. Uh, I think they're overconfident here, and I think they need to step back and really ask themselves what's best for the industry, what's best for Canadians, what's best for our digital economy, Uh, because everything that we've seen thus far really hasn't been in those best interests. And certainly there's, while they're 
you know, actively campaigning, saying Canada's finally standing up for itself. We're finally drawing a line in the sand. We're finally doing something after decades of inaction, which are all true. Uh, they're, they're, they've closed their ears to any uh, comment from the industry, uh, which I think is a very dangerous thing to be doing at this late stage. So certainly I hope uh, they listen to saner, you know, saner, uh, saner heads. And I hope they look at the law and I hope that they have the courage to craft it in such a way that makes everyone happy. It's not going to be perfect. We're not probably going to get the same degree of, you know, the, the revenue that the government is hoping for. But at the same time, it's not about numbers anymore. Uh, it's about doing what's fair and sustainable and at least establishing a foundation so that both the tech industries and the and the media industries can then work together in partnership to make sure that they're still around a few years from now. That's what we're aiming for. And right now, that dialogue isn't happening. And the next move is the federal government's. Yeah. And that, and we got to run, but that, that, that's, that's, I think one of the concerns within a lot of people in the media is that, okay, so you can play this game of chicken, but if the end result is that most of the media is gone and all that's left is the government funded one, yeah, there's still something left, but uh, is that an acceptable position and place for this country to be in? And uh, I mean, everyone listening can have their own opinions. Uh, mine is no, but um, th yeah, that may be where we're heading. Exactly. Unless the government can, you know, can actively open up its own checkbook uh, and replace the revenue that would have come from technology companies. But even then, uh, Carmen, even yeah. then, that then all people say is, look, you're just a government funded arm. You're just a, a mouthpiece of the government. That that still doesn't solve the problem that we need to have solved. This is a, uh, we've got a couple months to try and, for, no, not us. We've got a couple months for the government to figure this out, or this could be uh a really interesting scenario. When I say interesting, I mean bad. Uh, Carmi Levy, technology analyst, journalist. Thanks for doing this, Carmi. Always appreciate it. Great being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. 911.